let's make a start. Mark chapter 1, going to read from verse 21 through to 39. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. But just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her. She began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. I wonder if you have ever been on a taster day. Uh, This might have been the case if you were making a decision about what university you would like to go to. um, And so you've looked through different prospectus. uh, You've kind of reduced your search down to a few. And then maybe you you go to those universities or you went to those towns to see what it's like. You get a a taster, um, a good impression of, well, what's the department like? What's the the town or city like? What's the environment like? Um, Can I see myself living in this place. Or maybe that's the case for you if you've made decisions about sixth form and what subjects to do and whether to go to college or stay in the school that you were in so far. You get a a taste today. Here, uh, still in Mark chapter 1, we get 24 hours spent with Jesus, every day with Jesus. Well, here's one of them for the disciples that have just recently decided to respond to his invitation and follow him. So it's a 24-hour period with Jesus in a place called Capernaum, uh, kind of significant town or city uh, in Galilee, um, maybe around a thousand, possibly even more than that, up to ten thousand, some would estimate, people living in that place. And it's a Sabbath day. It's a Saturday when uh, the Israelites, the Jews in that town, would gather, uh, and initially they'd go to the synagogue. They wouldn't do any work. Um, until the sun went down. So this special day, and a day which kind of gives us a taste of what God's kingdom announced, declared, proclaimed by Jesus is actually like. Four features. We see four aspects to God's kingdom uh, made clear in Jesus. So right at the beginning of Mark, we've got John the Baptist He's coming as one preparing the way, almost uh, as it were with an announcement, uh, as a herald saying, the king is on his way, the king is coming, the kingdom is coming, there's been a great victory, there's wonderful news and the king is coming. And he leads people during that time and then uh, Jesus begins his ministry, the time has come, he says, Uh, the kingdom of God is here, it's close at hand, you can reach out. Jesus came bringing God's kingdom. And right at the outset, by, by showing us what happened on this particular day, Mark is saying, here's more of what you can expect as you continue to turn the pages 
in the New Testament. Here's what you can continue to expect as the story of what Jesus did in his life on earth unfolds. I'm going to give you a flavor of it right now. Um, and each flavor, each aspect, each feature will be developed more. And we'll, we'll see more of it as Mark's gospel unfolds. This is like an appetizer. You kind of, you get a taste, you get a morsel. Um, you get a good idea of what the whole banquet, the whole feast uh, is like as Mark unfolds his gospel. So we're going to look at those four things and see what is it that Jesus actually did. How did he demonstrate the kingdom of God? Like I say, we see that in four ways. First of all, we see Jesus teaching the people. There you have it, the first flavor, the first aspect. Jesus was teaching the people. In verse 21, we're told, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into their synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And so it's a little brief uh, snapshot, really, but Mark, even at this early outset, is driving the point home. What was incredibly significant about Jesus and his ministry in demonstrating the kingdom of God was teaching. He went to the synagogue. Maybe they already were aware of who he was or the disciples that he was with were able to introduce him. So he didn't just uh, kind of rush up. He was warmly invited to, uh, to teach in the synagogue. And what he spoke grabbed the attention of all those who heard. And so we see right here the, the importance of teaching in God's kingdom. There's good news for people to hear. And this whole day is rounded off with Jesus' kind of surprising conclusion. Well, it surprised his disciples um, in any case, because in verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So Jesus saw his reason for coming as to preach and to teach good news. He was in a synagogue. He was speaking to Jewish people. He was speaking to people who every week would gather to hear the scriptures taught. Surely they'd heard it before. Surely they were familiar. And sometimes that can be the case for us if we've come uh, frequently, if we were born uh, in a Christian family or regularly attending a church. We think, well, I've kind of, I've got used to what you hear. I've, I've heard it all before, and, and from that familiarity can just start to develop layers of contempt or, uh, or disinterest. But what they hear on this particular day grabs their attention. It's completely different to what they've been hearing before. Jesus wants them to hear good news. It might be intriguing, but I believe that's why he silences demons when they uh, are cast out. And tells people when they're healed, don't tell anyone. You think, well, that's a bit bizarre. Why does he want to keep it under wraps? Well, he doesn't want to keep it under wraps as such. But just observing a miracle doesn't necessarily help people understand and receive the truth. He wants people to hear this good news. And just witnessing or hearing a miracle could still lead people to to miss the point. So teaching is absolutely important in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came doing. We see that perhaps here a whole lot is not said yet about what was he actually teaching. And so Mark's going, aha, keep turning the page, keep tuning in. It's going to be revealed as this gospel unfolds. Some of the specific contents of what was so radical, what was so different, what was so life-changing about the truth that Jesus brought. We're going to, to kind of get into that. But there's already enough to, to show us that this is different from what they were usually hearing. This was in sharp contrast to the standard stuff they were served up by the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law would perhaps be quoting lots of different rabbis, 
uh, presenting kind of layers of, of interpretation through history. And, and some have thought this and, and some have said that. Um, and, and, and perhaps it means this, and, and perhaps they're just used to a whole lot of speculation, a whole lot of uncertainty, a whole lot of ifs, buts, and maybes. And perhaps there's a hint here in the fact that they're called teachers of the law, again, of the style of their teaching. What were they used to hearing? Well, here are the rules. Here are the laws. Here are the things that you have to do. Call yourself... A child of God, well, here are the standards. Here's what's appropriate. You want to go on experiencing the favor of God, you've got to match up to this and to this. And don't forget about that. And so what they were used to was perhaps just a kind of heavy weight of, of teaching. Um, and, and maybe there would be some who feel, well, yes, I can aspire to that. Um, uh, my, my history, my behavior... My lifestyle, my story so far is basically in keeping with the law of God, praise God. Therefore, basically, relatively speaking, I'm clean before God. I'm able to come before him, perhaps in a way that other people aren't. Well, I guess a bit of messy baggage, uh, colorful history, um, don't really understand. No, this, this isn't for them. Uh, now, maybe a few would be thinking that, but for many, just perhaps under a weight of... Is this how you relate with God? Just rules? Obligations? Duties? Sense of heaviness? A sense of never quite hitting the mark, never quite achieving the standard, never quite being good enough, but come back next week and you can get another dose of the same kind of ministry of condemnation. This is what God's like. He's holy. And here's his rules. You can't possibly keep them, but die trying would perhaps be their standard fare. So again, we're getting a hint of what was it that was so different? What was it that was so remarkable? What was it that so amazed, astounded, produced a kind of a reaction of awe and wonder with Jesus' teaching? We're getting a flavor. He's causing a stir. He's demonstrating his authority. It's not ifs, buts, and maybes. It's, I'm going to tell you what's true. Unpacking the word of God with clarity and certainty, not in a way that leaves people under a weight, a weight or a kind of dark cloud, but, oh, well, you could kind of think people are, just kind of processing the implications. Um, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. This is not like what we've been hearing. There's something fresh here. There's something alive here. There's something that actually gives me hope. There's something that takes the weight off my shoulders and leads me to... So this is for me. I can relate with God. I, I can... There's a, there's a way... There's open, there's good news. Maybe they were just used to bad news, but Jesus comes declaring good news. Radical truth. That rearranged what they understood and believed about how we relate to God. Familiar with the Bible, as they had it then. Familiar with the Jewish scriptures, but perhaps not actually familiar with the truth. So we're seeing right at the outset the importance of teaching. And Jesus is saying, there's stuff that people just have to hear. And when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, this same kind of flavor is coming across. Uh, in chapter 10, reading kind of partway from v- verse uh, 9, well, from the beginning of verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wonderful good news. And the question in verse 14, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And so on. It's kind of just driving home the point. Here is wonderful good news which actually needs to be heard. Actually needs to be received. Time needs to be spent unpacking it a little bit. And presenting it. And therefore, in the kingdom of God, seeking to express that as a church, we obviously want to give a significant place to teaching. And sometimes the the most spiritual thing can be thought to be the dramatic stuff that might follow. And, you know, if only as we worshipped, we could then just keep going and loads of stuff would be happening. And, yeah, you know, it's such a holy moment. There's no time for teaching. Well, in God, there can be dramatic moments which are like that. But faith comes by hearing the word of God. And woe betide us if we think, I've heard it all before. There's nothing I need to receive now in terms of teaching. No, we're we're infants. Many of us anyway, speaking for myself, we're scratching the surface of how good God is. We're dipping our toe in to the wonders that are presented in his word. And we want to keep doing that, keep Keep savouring it. Sometimes that will actually mean it gets under our skin. I believe that's what was happening for many when Jesus was teaching. They were, they were getting this amazed response. But for some, it's a provocation. It was hard to hear. It was uncomfortable to hear. And we might see an example of that in John's Gospel in uh, chapter 8. Again, speaking to people who were familiar with Scripture, who who thought they understood. And this was even to uh, people who thought, uh, who who had up until this point been following Jesus. So John chapter 8 and verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's a reason to give our attention to the Word of God and what Jesus says. And there's the reason why Jesus wanted to preach and teach in a synagogue and elsewhere on a mountainside um, and in people's homes as well, for that matter, because he knew that ultimately for people to experience a freedom, a freedom from the weight, a freedom from the rigidity, freedom from the the oppression of having a worldview that, that isn't actually biblical, so that it's the truth that's going to set you free. But he gets a reaction. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. I've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? They were affronted. They were offended. They thought they already were free. I already thought I was a Christian at the age of 10. And I went away to a youth camp. And uh, it was arranged in, in kind of uh, staying in dormitories. And in the morning, the, the leaders... Uh, would just kind of gather together um, with you know the six or eight of us ten year olds in this dorm and you know open up the word of God for a few minutes before going to have breakfast um, and they just ask the question when did you become a Christian everyone uh, kind of round the circle then then shared and I was, I was very interested by all of this um, and I when it came around to me I said well I was interested by other people's stories and accounts. I said, well, I've always been one. Um, it was another 10-year-old who pointed to me and said, no, you haven't. I was like, what do you mean? That's outrageous. Um, I was kind of shocked out of my spiritual apathy because I thought I knew what a Christian was. I thought I knew what a disciple was. These guys thought they knew what a disciple was. How dare you speak to us like that? We're descendants of Abraham. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. And there we have, if Jesus had a catchphrase, it would probably be that. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. You've heard it said elsewhere by all this speculation and nonsense, this, that, and the other. But I tell you the truth. And he unpacks the word of God in a way that actually, if people are prepared to hear, brings life, brings hope. 
That's what happened to me. I, it started me on, on a more genuine journey, a more genuine discovery. Of, oh, actually, what is a Christian then? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? And so later that week, responded to the gospel. I said, I'm not missing out on this. I want in. Um, just getting a taste of teaching, even though sometimes it's provocative. Is there anything that's got under your skin recently? Any truth, either preached or elsewhere? Something, well, it's an indication sometimes of, well, we'll dig in, therefore. Don't skirt over that. Or, 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 I don't, I'm not quite sure I understand or like the implications of what I've just heard, so I'm going to just ignore it. I'll move on to something that I kind of feel comfortable with. Now, well, actually, if something's got under your skin, that could be an example, could be an example of Jesus just pin- pinpointing something. Because the way in which we view the world will have biblical truth shaping it, but it'll also have the world around us shaping it, our culture, our upbringing, our experience in life so far, shaping what we think is true. Therefore, we need to get digging in the Word of God because we need a biblical mindset, not just a Western one, um, as, as we'll see as we go through. So, Jesus, the kingdom of God, one aspect, one flavor, teaching the people. What else do we see? Well, this teaching did get a big reaction. People were amazed, awestruck even. And then you kind of think, well, this, this is all going so well. Why did verse 23 have to happen? Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. It was all going so well, but this big reaction kind of gets bigger. And so we see this second aspect to the kingdom of God that Jesus is demonstrating in that synagogue on that Sabbath. He casting out demons, casting out evil spirits. What on earth are we to make with that? Well, firstly, the word possessed is distinctly unhelpful because it's not actually in the scriptures. Perhaps when the King James Version of the Bible was translated centuries ago, that phrase actually didn't have quite a strong connotation. Um, For us, the word possessed implies total ownership of something or someone or total control. And so we can read the words there. There was a man there in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit. We can have something in our mind which is more like a zombie film um, than, than normal life. Total control and like a bit of a horror show. Um, well, the translation would be better if it just said, there was a man in their synagogue who had or who was... who. who who was with an evil spirit. An evil spirit was with this guy. There's a certain measure of influence, a certain effect that that spirit has. But, well, let's just look at this man. He's he's in the synagogue. He's in the meeting. He's presumably been there before. Well-respected member of the community. Known by others. There weren't necessarily alarm bells or some really sinister individual walked in the building. It's just an ordinary member of the community, able in large part, in many circumstances, just to conduct a normal life. In the synagogue, in the community, socially. It wasn't apparent, in other words, that he was a man with an evil spirit. Until this day, that is. And so um, that spirit, an evil or unclean spirit, nevertheless has a desire to oppress this individual. And maybe for some time has actually not been seeking to draw attention to itself particularly. And its influence is perhaps subtle. And in other pages of the, of the New Testament, we see actually... The writers of the New Testament are saying, you know, watch out, be alert for Satan and the devil for his subtle schemes or little fiery darts. 
so yeah, there's a, there's a sinister element, bringing some measure of oppression to to influence this person to to kind of keep them bound in some ways, in some aspects of life. Then Jesus turns up. His teaching and his presence provokes this outburst. The remarkable outburst, verse 24, this guy says, or this spirit says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's remarkable because this evil spirit has a greater awareness and understanding of who Jesus actually is than any of Jesus' disciples. In fact, for the first half of this book, evil spirits have a greater awareness. They're under no illusion whatsoever of who's stood before him. Others might think, well, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, ordinary guy, carpenter, interesting teaching ministry, kind of watch this space. They're under absolutely no illusion. You're the Holy One of God, but there's no faith there. There's no kind of positive drawing towards Christ. Um, In the book of James uh, and chapter 2, just coming in partway through verse 18, verse 19 is the one in particular we'll look at, but just reading partway from verse 18, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So here we have this shuddering reaction as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, uh, opening up the word of God, helping people understand how it is that we have a relationship with God. There's a man there with an evil spirit. And it's like it just provokes this response, this kind of shuddering, shrinking back. What do you want with us? It's like he's aware. He's representing other evil spirits that are perhaps tucked away and keeping a low profile elsewhere in the community. What do you want with us if you come to destroy us? We know who you are. So it's very clear who Jesus is, but there's this kind of fearful reaction, this kind of shuddering response. What's your response to this aspect of the kingdom of God? I can think of a few possible ways of processing this. One would be skeptical. We tend, don't we, to focus on what we can touch, taste, smell, experience directly, see with our own eyes, observe, test. And so this is weird for us because we can't really engage with it with a Western understanding of reality. We we just see what we see um, and uh, would overlook or explain away um, Things are more mysterious. What's intriguing then is, is the Bible makes no apology, makes no defense. It's taken for granted. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit or who was with an evil spirit. Think, well, Mark didn't have to elaborate that particularly um, for his first readers. Uh, in fact, many cultures today, that, that wouldn't need to be elaborated on as, a, as, a, as an awareness of a spiritual realm, as awareness of everything can't be neatly explained by what we observe scientifically, what we can explain rationally. A biblical worldview, therefore, is presented to us as one where there is a realm that we can't see. There's a realm that we can't touch. There's a realm that we don't necessarily hear from directly, um, but is presented to us here, is understood by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament as well, as reality. But our reaction could be, skeptical how can you prove it one other reaction could be the opposite extreme really of just getting preoccupied and sometimes this will be the case for christians sometimes the case for people who who aren't disciples of jesus there's a preoccupation with the spiritual realm with with horoscopes uh, with astrology and uh with tarot uh, with clairvoyance, with spiritism, uh, with kind of contacting your ancestors somehow, you know, uh, television programs, books, you know, a massive section of bookshops will be not just world religion, but kind of 
inner healing, uh, Eastern mysticism, uh, lots of unusual uh, philosophies. And, and therefore it can be a preoccupation with the spiritual realm. And then for some Christians, a, a kind of a sense of which, well, every problem, every issue gets explained with reference to demons. If someone is unwell, if someone is tempted to sin, if someone is going through some unusual circumstances, if someone hears a strange noise, if there's a particularly bad thunderstorm, everything is spiritual. Everything is, well, there's a battle in the heavenlies tonight. That's a thunderstorm. It happens. It's not bad, actually. If we've not had rain for a while, we, we need that. That's good. Um, but there can be an unhealthy preoccupation and everything is explained in this way what we're seeing here is one aspect of the kingdom it's not absolutely all there is to say sometimes if we um, have that response uh, we might be responding in a third way which is just fear Understandable to a large extent, if we if we feel we don't understand something, we can't easily look into it. It's not great to get preoccupied with anyway, but it's here in the pages of Scripture. What do we do with it? I don't know. I'm just kind of afraid. What are the implications here? If it's not completely unusual and a bizarre one-off, is it commonplace? I'm not quite sure I like that. Sometimes as Christians... Many of us can talk about being under spiritual attack. And it can be, we might know what we mean, roughly speaking, by that. It can kind of set a kind of bit of a fearful agenda. And it kind of makes out that the kingdom of God is some static thing, or that's how we are. We're, we're in the kingdom of God. It's not really dynamic, it's not really moving, it's not really growing, it's not really changing, it's not really advancing, it's just there, and you're a part of it. But keep a low profile, because you might come under spiritual attack, and therefore, you kind of see the kingdom of darkness being this mobile, dynamic, threatening, advancing force. Um, and, well, of course, in Scripture, there are parts which talk about these fiery darts or the subtle schemes of the enemy. There is the reality that as disciples of Jesus, we are in a battle. We don't actually choose that. We don't opt into it. We can't opt out of it. It's reality. There's a battle. Often that's waged in our minds. There's a battle going on. And there is a spiritual realm. Is our response then to be skeptical? Well, I hope not as an extreme or preoccupied. I hope not as an extreme or fearful. I hope not. Because what we're seeing here is to be leading us towards a different response, a response of faith. Jesus is the king, declaring God's kingdom, and Jesus is on the move. God is the one advancing. He's the one coming into the synagogue coming into different communities, declaring good news. The kingdom of God is advancing, kind of, and evil spirit's cover is, is broken. Been hiding away, keeping a low profile. So we see this kind of noisy show, this dramatic deliverance, if you want to call it that, someone becoming free, from an evil spirit, is actually not something to be afraid of. This is confirming something wonderful. The victory and authority of Jesus. And so with two brief and simple commands, he deals with this noisy interruption. Be quiet. Concerned that this demon shuddering might cause other people to shudder or recoil. So just silence. And secondly, come out of him. He wants to bring freedom to this man from something that he's been unable to shake off himself. Now, this is a feature of Mark's gospel. It's a flavor here. We'll see other examples as we get into other chapters of Mark's gospel of people getting free from some evil influence 
that is affecting their life, they're affecting their ability to, to receive and believe truth. And we see how Jesus and his disciples deal with it. So something we'll touch on as we go through this book. But important to see, not everything is attributed to unclean, evil spirits. And that leads us on to the third aspect. Verse 29 After this rather noisy and busy meeting in the synagogue where people were amazed at what they heard and witnessed, Mark quickly moves on. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. They need something to eat. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. Jesus learns of her illness, of her uh, predicament. Again, he's, he's motivated to respond and sees this opportunity to bless her and demonstrate what his kingdom is like and involves. So they head back to Simon's house. And what we come here to is a very different scenario. Jesus here is encountering physical illness, not demonization. This is something that's happening in private. In the home. It's not in public. In the synagogue. He's wanting to bring freedom and blessing, this time, to a woman, not to a man. On this occasion, again, it's very different. He uses these tender actions. The words of Jesus here aren't recorded, but his actions are. He went to her. He took her hands and he helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. So we see the tenderness of Jesus as opposed to previously in the synagogue, his relatively stern words. And it's very matter of fact. It's not a light show. It's not dramatic like it was in the synagogue. So we're seeing that Jesus is not formulaic. He's not kind of just churning through the same method. He's not just focused on on one thing, preoccupied with one specific issue. Now he's seeing the kingdom of God and he's demonstrating it in its breadth. And people are receiving it. So a very different scenario here. But what is the same is there's a complete change. A complete recovery. She was in bed. She's lifted up. She had a fever. The fever's gone. She was, she was unable to, to be active. Now she's active. Right there and then. God's kingdom at work in healing the sick. Our third aspect. So no wonder the whole town gathered at the door that evening. A day in the life of Jesus. Pretty busy. Pretty unpredictable. But the kingdom advancing. They probably gathered at the end of the day after the sun had gone down because... They were still had ingrained the teaching of the, uh, the, the, the teachers of the law. You can't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, that's in God's word. But that had been interpreted as you can't get healed or you can't be delivered on the Sabbath because that would constitute work. It's kind of sometimes the other way around for us. We kind of think as healing, sometimes potentially, is, if it does happen, it's, it kind of only happens in the meeting. Come to the meeting, a healing might take place. Um, but it's not really for out there. For, for this community, it was the other way around. Don't mind what happens out there, but it's not happening in the synagogue, and it's not happening on the Sabbath, uh, was pr- perhaps the prevailing thought. So they wait for the sun to go down when the Sabbath is technically over, and they've heard this news about what's happened. And so that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demonized. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many of their various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. He didn't want the demons setting the agenda, this fearful, shuddering response. He wanted people to hear and experience uh, the kingdom of God for themselves. And that is our privilege also as part of this advance of God's kingdom. Maybe that means sometimes stuff getting uncovered, which has a demonic flavor to it. 
let's not be too concerned. It's actually a positive thing. If nothing ever happened like that, are we really on the advance? <laughs> um, and perhaps with a Western worldview for many of us, it's kind of just deeply tucked away rather than out on the surface like it would be in some cultures. Nevertheless, there's a reality to the spiritual realm. So as a church, if we are advancing, playing our part in the kingdom of God, we will at times have noisy interruptions or or kind of, it might not be easy to say, it might not be some loud outburst, but more just a case of, again, just getting the flavor of something. This this kind of has a, a fearful, shuddering flavor to it. Why don't we just pray about this a little bit more, whatever the issue might be. The alternative is just get getting used to the way things are. Now, maybe that was the case for that community there in Capernaum, gathering to the synagogue. Just get used to it. Nothing ever really changes. Here's the law. Here's the word. You can't do it, can you? No, I, I, I realize that. Um, but, uh, uh, oh, well, this is just the way I am. This is not going to change. And just, again, subtle lies from the enemy. Don't, don't open up. Don't let on what's really going on. People will reject you. you. You'll be shunned. You'll be pushed away. Everyone's smiling on a Sunday, but they won't, they won't come close to you. If you let on, there's a more significant issue in your life that is just beneath the surface. They won't want to know. And those are the subtle lies, the subtle, well, not so subtle, fiery darts that we have an enemy who wants to fire those at us. If we're not alert to that, we think, oh, expectations for the kingdom of God shrink. What's going to happen? We're going to turn up. We're going to hear the same thing we heard last week. We'll worship God a little bit. We'll go home. Nothing really gets affected. I guess I've just got to live with that. I guess that's just never going to change. Let's believe for the advance of God's kingdom, and let's respond in faith, believing that Jesus is the king who came and said, I'm going to tell you the truth, and the truth will set you free. As we advance in the kingdom, let's believe that we'll be seeing more examples of healing the sick. It's a slightly different aspect in a way, Again, it's almost as though now throughout human history, God gives us taster after taster of what will be forever in glory, where there's no sickness, no pain, no disease, no disability. That's what's to come forever, fully, wonderfully in heaven for all those who call on the name of the Lord but we get a flavor of it in the here and now. We get a down payment. We get examples of this. You'll get more of this to come in glory. But let me just show you now what my kingdom is like. Oh, someone's got healed. It's been prayed for in the name of Jesus. It wasn't fireworks. It wasn't dramatic. But you know what? Something has changed. There'll be mysterious examples where things don't change. And we're standing with one another to support and encourage one another through a condition or an illness that might be a feature of life. Nevertheless, the advance of the kingdom of God, the authority that's in the name of Jesus, means that we can expect to encounter healing when we pray in the name of Jesus. Wonderful aspect to God's kingdom. What about this fourth aspect, this fourth flavor. Again, it might have an unusual taste to it. It's this, praying to God. Very early in the morning, verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Let's get the context again. Really busy day, lots going on, 
the night before. The Sabbath was over. The sun had set and he healed many people and cast out many demons. He got to bed late because there was so much happening. And we see another feature of Mark's gospel. He wants to shine light on this and show us Jesus' determination to get alone with God. It's not pretense. It's not just setting an example that wasn't really necessary for him. No, he he needed this. Yeah, but he was God. Jesus is God. So of course he could do all that stuff. Surely it was effortless. Probably not. Yes, God, but relying on the power of the Spirit and relying on time with his Father to reveal his will. Jesus is not play-acting. It's not, oh, I suppose I ought to. I guess I will set a good example for the disciples if I do this. It's not kind of, I must in terms of some abstract rule or principle. It's, I really need time with God. I really need time with my father. So he goes to bed after the sun has set. He gets up before the sun has risen. This is vital. And this is his only opportunity. He needed to get to a solitary place where he prayed. Literally, he needed quiet time. The disciples are puzzled by it. The um, The sense of Mark's language is that they were searching for him they were puzzled, they were a bit anxious, and a bit impatient. So it could be there's a little bit, they're a little bit peeved. They're a little bit on edge when they come to say, everyone is looking for you. The whole town had turned out the night before. Jesus had healed many of them, but very likely not all of them. So there's this demand, there's this expectation. You've got to come back. You've got to finish. You've got, you've got to come to me. You've got to come to these people. The disciples are maybe aware of this, and they're thinking, "Well, Jesus has started something. This popular movement is is uh, is going to build uh, a head of steam." Um, but Jesus is not running to catch up with other people's expectations. He's busy. This is full on, but he's not kind of chasing. The result is, he, it, well, he just needs time with. God, and that's what gives him the the clarity of where is my heavenly father leading next. And it's surprising. The disciples thinking straight off the bat was, well, of course, the answer is obvious. We've got this town of however many thousands of people. They've all turned out. Many of them have been healed. Loads of them haven't. So we don't need to inquire of God what to do next. It's obvious. Stay here. Set up a conference center and kind of have meetings every night and let the crowds gather and kind of do these signs and wonders. And Jesus says, no, because I've spent time with God and he's not actually leading us to do the most popular thing. It's a, it's a different kingdom. We need to keep moving. Let us go somewhere else. To the nearby villages. Sometimes the, the emphasis, sometimes in Christian circles today, is just the, the great importance of the city. And the city is where everything happens. And the city is a dark place. But the city is a place of opportunity and power as well. So what you must do is get into the city and all the places of influence and be sultan like there. Well, yes, God might lead us to that in many ways and different times, he might not. Jesus is saying, no, it's time to go to the grassroots. It's time to go to smaller communities. It's time to, for us to be on the move and, and keep sharing good news. So God doesn't just lead his son or his people down the most obvious track, the most popular idea of the day. So no, I need to preach these nearby villages need to go elsewhere need to keep traveling need to go and preach need to go and teach so rounding off this day rounding off this taster session he traveled throughout galilee he wasn't just focused in one location it's all about the synagogue it's all about capernaum it's like that was his base perhaps for a while but he's traveling with his disciples preaching in other places preaching in their synagogues and 
just bringing uh, attention to this unusual aspect again, driving out demons. So for us, prayer, it's not an abstract rule, I ought to. It, this is what the kingdom of God is like. We're able to. We get to. We have the privilege of. The way is open so that we can seek God and hear from him. And it's absolutely vital that we do because we'll just go off track if we don't. Without realizing it, we'll just default to the ways of the world. This is the good idea. That's the kind of in vogue model for church life or whatever it might be. We'll pursue that. We'll do this. Just do the popular thing. Go with the flow. Here's what people are expecting. So fit in with those expectations. So now we've got to be free to seek God and hear from him and in faith pursue what he would have us do and where he would have us go. So we're getting today a flavor of what God's kingdom is like. I believe that God wants us and has plans for us to become more familiar with these flavors, believing that the whole purpose of drawing us to himself, or in large part anyway, on this earth, is that we might be involved in the advance of his kingdom. That we might be involved, let's not forget that first aspect The first flavor was teaching. It was knowing the truth and being set free for the truth. Having almost our appetite encouraged again. Have you ever had that? When you do actually have like an appetizer or a starter or just some kind of small nibble, you didn't realize you were hungry. You weren't hungry. You could have gone for another hour or two without a meal. But now you've had an appetizer, you want the main course. You, you want the kind of the banquet. That element here to God's kingdom, getting a flavor. And actually, I'm ruined for anything else. I, I want to taste more. This is all good news. To be received with faith. Not to get fearful about or on the back foot, the kingdom of God is not so static and kind of just keep your heads down, everyone, or you'll get spotted. No, it's we're on the advance. It's the enemy that shudders, and we're involved with Christ in a kingdom that has a wonderful, glorious future and conclusion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and we'll worship God together.